Today, I'll talk about our last chapter, which is about uh, corporate governance and business ethics. Let's start with corporate governance in this first part. So corporations are comprised of individuals who are expected to work for the interests of the whole company. At the heart of a firm's functioning is that the principal delegates work to the agent who performs that work on behalf of the principal. This is pretty much the idea of collaboration or division of labor in a company, if you wish. But this mechanism creates the so-called agency problem because cooperating parties in a firm have different goals and desires and interests. On one hand, principals look for maximized returns for shareholders, while on the other hand, agents are inherently more inclined to care about their own interests. And making things even worse, agents have an, inform, uh, have an information advantage over principals because they are the ones who perform the task on behalf of the principals. This information asymmetry between principals and agents works in the favor of agents, especially for ones who are looking for ways to realize their own interests, no matter what outcomes for the principals are. One way to mitigate these agency problem risks is to recruit good people for the business uh, people um, that can be trusted and have integrity. But it's not an easy task. Adverse selection is highly possible under inherent information asymmetry between candidate agents and the principals. Another term used to define the uh, define the probability of recruiting not so good people is the market for lemons. Karloff coined this term to outline the effects of information asymmetry between buyers and sellers in a market. He uses the analogy of the market for lemons by taking the used car market as an example. Think about it. The seller of a used car has way much information about the quality of the car compared to the buyers in the second-hand car market. He had more time to experience the car and assess the quality and physical condition of the car. But the buyer can only learn about the condition of the car when the transaction is consummated or if the seller is honest enough to reveal it to the buyer before the transaction occurs. If the buyer doesn't have this information, according to the Lemons principle, the buyer has no option but to assume that all cars are good. Similarly, a firm cannot get to know how an agent will actually perform before recruiting him or her, of course. The adverse selection um, risk is always there. The principal may not even get to know whether the agent was a good lemon or not even after the agent starts work, uh, working for him because it is very difficult and expensive to verify if the agent is doing what he's supposed to or paid to do. That is what we call moral hazard. The moral hazard concept has been mostly associated with bailouts for banks. The idea is that the banks take the risks of giving credits to people with low credit scores because they know that even if, the, uh, even if these high-risk people largely fail to pay their debts, governments will help the banks with huge bailout payments because the financial system is too important for the national economy and too big to fail. This implicit government insurance leads financial institutions to take very high risks without thinking of its consequences for society. We already know that people are inherent suspects of opportunism, and the moral hazard is a specific case of it. If the agents in a company are not sufficiently monitored 
or held accountable for their failures, it is highly likely that they will follow their own interests. So it is not a surprise that moral hazard can be observed everywhere in an organization. For example, a person can use company resources for his or her, uh, her private needs or goals. Take these two simple examples. The first example comes from your textbook. A scientist in a biotech company uses his time to work on a different project of his own, with which in the end, if he succeeds, he wants to start, with his, uh, start his company. He works on this project without his company, company's approval or knowledge. Not only he spends his time that is supposed to be spent on the company's project, but also he uses the company's lab resources. I found this second example from a business ethics book. In this case, the guy works as a bartender in a bar. After having troubles with his managers and being not very happy with his pay, he finds a way to keep himself motivated. When his friends visit him in the bar and drink a number of beers, he discreetly and uh, only charges his friends for one. According to the story, when one of his friends raised the issue, he laughs it off and says how wonderful it is to have a free drink. He also rationalizes what he does by unfair treatment he has received so far. So when agents are not incentivized or monitored sufficiently, they're prone to misbehave. This is why incentive and control systems are important and a need to work hand in hand to reduce the risks of opportunism. And we call control and incentive systems in general corporate governance mechanisms. Okay, as we talked about principles um, and agents, let's look at the broader picture and think about the relevant actors in an organization. Owner and CEO. In a typical organization, that's it. The owner and the CEO are the same people. They run the barbershop, they run a pizza restaurant. That is the business organization. They do the world of work for their business. There is no governance problem here because the CEO and the owner are identical. But of course, some organizations have employees and some organizations have executives and some organizations have a board of directors. They fit in between the CEO and the owner. What CEO and all of the hierarchy below um, do is management. That is what you study in a business school, marketing, finance, accounting, operations, economics, all those things. CEO is the top of all these people down below. When we look at the bow, it's governance. If you think about it, the owners, all, uh, the owners own all the assets and governance is the way the owners control the use of their assets. And as this box implies, owners do not control the use of assets through the employees. They control the use of their assets through the CEO. CEO hires or fires general manager, for example. So governance is the process by which the owners control the use of their assets through the CEO and the CEO does what he does with the owner's assets. CEO uses the owner's assets. So the definition of governance is from the owner to the CEO and the management is from the CEO to the employees. As you may recognize, CEO is the only person who is in both loops. Then we think of these layers of people. These are the ones who run the business. The CEO is elected to his job by the board. And when the time comes, the board of directors fires the CEO. But CEO not only runs the office for the board of directors, 
but also he runs the office for the people below him. So they effectively and efficiently work for the CEO in return. So governance is mostly dominated by the CEO and his actions and decisions. Let's draw a straight line and write CEO on both sides. Let's assume that the line represents all CEOs in the world. Below the line are executives and employees, all these actors we mentioned just a second ago, all exposed to different organizational structures. One end of this line, the left-hand side, is where the owner and the CEO are the same people. There is no distance between the owner and the CEO at this point, representing all the companies where the CEO and the owner are combined. At the other end of the line, the right-hand side, the owner is up there, and the distance between these lines represents the distance between the owner and the CEO. Between the owner and the CEO, there are these other actors, a financial advisor, somebody who, who advises the owner how to deploy his assets, institutional investor, fund manager, the board of directors. Actually, you may come up with different actors in between. This is just to illustrate if you are the shareholder, aka the owner of GE, for example, there is some distance between you and the GE's um, CEO. In this example, the CEO does know you and you don't know the CEO in person. There are several differences between these two ends of the line. At the left-hand side, the CEO and the owner are the same people and he cares about the business. He thinks about the interests of business all day long. Who cares at the other hand, um, the right-hand side? The owner may not even know that he owns G shares. It is one of the stocks that he bought with the advice of the financial advisor. Financial advisor thinks about the clients, how he is going to persuade people to pay his fee for his advice. So he doesn't care much about the company's interests. When it comes to the institutional investor, he cares more about the performance of the funds he's holding but not much about the interests of the company. All they care about is um, holding companies whose stocks increase in value. Then we come to the board of directors. Do they care? To some extent, yes, but because they care about their professional career, they want to do things right. It is not their life, it's something that they do on the side. It is their reputation. Hence, they do want to do things right. This is how they become a part of the corporate governance control system. And then we come to the CEO. Do they care? According to the MIT professor and the ex-advisor to the Rockefeller company, the new CEOs care, but old CEOs become rich. Then the relevant question becomes who should care the most? Owners have the skin in the game. They put money in the business. They drive whatever leaks from the other guys all the way up to them. And everybody else works for a fee. Look at these ridiculous examples. Before filing bankruptcy, many companies, including the recent failures, JCPenney, Hertz, Chuck E. Cheese, many of them surprisingly doled out over $100 million in executive bonuses. They did this to shield themselves from shareholders, the actual owners of the company's assets. We can justify these substantial payouts under crisis conditions, right? That's crazy. Anyways, this is the static view of governance, but over time, companies can move from one end to the other. Every company starts from the left, where the owner and the CEO are the same people. Even Amazon started here. Then what happens? As the business succeeds, um, the company 
needs cash to make the necessary investments to grow. The owner CEO goes to a bank, to venture capitalists, to a relative or to investors in the stock market to find the necessary capital. Then the distance between the CEO and the owner begins to grow. Somewhere in between, the companies decide to sell shares to the public, the IPO. Instead of having private owners, the distance between the owner and the CEO increases. The company goes public for cheaper capital, and this requires the firm to have a board of directors to protect the interests of the shareholders. The founder owner can still be there and act like an owner like Jeff Bezos. It may not be very clear who keeps the control at companies where there is a dominant founder owner with greatest equity compared to the public. But after some point, as you move to the other end, the owner may want to turn it over to the other actors and step down. What is the board of directors? The board of directors is comprised of insiders and outsiders who are elected by the shareholders. Inside the directors are the CEO, CFO, and other executives in the company. Outside the directors can be anyone, but most likely the executives from other companies. Here, for example, I copied the directors at Amazon from the company's website. As you can see, the outside directors are executives from other companies or ex-CEOs. For example, Indra Noe is the ex-CEO of Pepsi, and she started her director position at Amazon last year. But in theory, anyone who is not directly associated with the company other than the internal board members can be a director. Outside directors bring outside experience and perspective to the board, and they're expected to present objective insights to the firm related issues and act as an independent mediator to solve any internal conflicts or disputes. But in general, these are the main responsibilities of the board. Strategic guidance, CEO selection, evaluation, compensation, succession, executive compensation, making sure that financial statements are accurate, and the company is in compliance with laws and regulations. Okay, the board of directors is one of the internal governance mechanisms that mainly does the control job in an organization, or at least is expected to do the control job to reduce agency problems, as we discussed at the beginning of the class. The second mechanism to reduce agency opportunism is compensation. Executive compensation draws a substantial media attention because CEOs are paid way higher than the employees in an organization. Look at the comment of the Clinton administrator's administration's labor secretary, Robert Rye. He thinks that such inequality in the capitalist economy makes the economic system rigged, so the government needs to tax the rich. In another example, you can see the change of CEO pay ratio over the years and as of 2020, according to this source, CEOs make almost 300 times more than a typical employee. Then you make a quick search on CEO pay on Google, you will see many of these comments and figures. As CEOs are paid astronomically, uh, hugely high salaries compared to typical working people, the next question we may ask is, whether it's worth paying a fortune to CEOs. What is the relationship between CEO pay and company performance? The answer to this question, according to several academic studies, is yes, there's a positive relationship between CEO pay and company performance, but this relationship is found to be very weak. And given that scientists can torture data, so it confesses the results that they want, the question still remains partially unanswered. Being aware of these critics and as a gesture to shareholders, 
a trend in the corporate America has gained traction, $1 CEO pay. The idea of $1 pay has its roots in World War II America. At the time, in order to keep the economy mobilized, everyone was expected to do um, his or her part, and that included the nation's top business leaders. At the time, as a response, G and GM CEOs, known as the dollar a year men, offered their services to the government for free as a symbol of wartime sacrifice. After the oil crisis, the idea was again used by Chrysler. The company, as being one of the big three car companies in the US, had to ask for a bailout. And in order to show that he was serious about turning things around, the CEO of the company reduced his salary to $1. Again, during dot-com crisis, a number of high-profile tech execs joined the $1 club as a gesture to the shareholders. Then it became so trendy among tech CEOs that Los Angeles Times deemed the move a new status symbol.